Well, good morning, Harmony. How are we doing? As you can tell, I was running a little behind schedule there. I got late to handshakes. Forgot my water. You guys have a good week? No, so you didn't. Okay. Uh, we, in the last couple of weeks, have been in a series called He Greater Than Me. And I'm going to remind you of the focus we have as we go through today's sermon, which is this sermon isn't about you in any way, shape, or form. We have this tendency as people to make everything about ourselves. That's just nature, right? When we watch a show, we think about what characters we can relate to. When you see a product on TV, you think about what would that relate or do to your life. Everything becomes about you. It's just human nature. And unfortunately, we have a tendency to do this even when it comes to Scripture. We'll read an amazing story about God. We'll read an amazing story about Christ. And instead of pausing and setting on the fact that what we've just seen is an unbelievably gorgeous person, revealing to us an amazing character, revealing to us an amazing personality, instead what we will do is we will drive right by that and instead focus on, well, what does this mean to me? And what this has led to is it's led to, in many ways, modern Christianity turning into this self-help psychology. This idea that God's whole intent and purpose is for you to become the best version of yourself. That it's about you living your best life right now. And frankly, brothers and sisters, that's just junk. We don't read this book so that you can become a better you. We read this book because within its pages, it reveals to us the greatest being that has ever existed. A being that is literally perfect. A being whose love is so relentless, so pure and so powerful, it cannot be contained. A being who has so much power, it really truly is awesome. It takes your breath away. A being who exists and functions and, and just lives in a way that almost every aspect of it is meant to take your breath away. And the most beautiful thing about this book is that what it tells you is that that being loves you. That being made you. And that being wants to be in your life, not just here and there, not just as this one-time Savior, but as your everyday Lord. And we miss that. We miss that. And where we've got to be careful with missing that is that's exactly what the enemies of Jesus had missed. When Jesus shows up in the New Testament and comes to tell people about the good news, when he comes to reveal God's love and God's ways and God's plans, his enemies are not those who've never heard it. His enemies aren't those that are sinners. His enemies are actually the church people. It's actually the ones who've memorized Scripture. It's the ones that know every single rule, every single law. It's the ones who know all the feasts and all the right things to say and to do. But there was one huge, important thing they'd missed. The whole book was about loving God and loving people. And so, yes, God had given rules. God had given traditions. God had given feasts. But what all those things were supposed to do was push you and point you towards the fact that your life is about loving him and loving people. 
And when Jesus shows up, what he finds is, is there's this group who is not in love with God. They're not in love with people. They're in love with the rules. Now, why? Why would anybody ever fall in love with rules? Why, why would anybody ever want to build their life on rules? Well, here's why. Because they had learned that if they could live by those rules in the right way, it would give them power. They had learned in, the, in their society, being a religious authority, knowing the rules, abiding by the rules, and then also showing others where they failed, would elevate them. It would give them power. It would give them prestige. It would give them respectability. It would give them money. It would give them all those things they'd been looking for. And so they said, you know what? Forget this whole thing about loving God. I can use this game to glorify myself. And so when Jesus shows up, that is what riles him more than anything. Jesus actually has unbelievable compassion for those who ignorantly go against him. They don't know better. And so for those that don't know better, Jesus' whole goal is to talk to them and to show them and to reveal to them the truth so that ultimately they see, my goodness, there's this God and he is awesome and he loves me and he wants a relationship with me. But man, his spirit turns another way when he sees the Pharisees and Sadducees, when he sees those who have taken God's law, which was meant for love, and turned it into a, pool, a tool for oppression and for pride. Those people, they get his anger. And so brothers and sisters, where I think all of us have to be careful, especially those of us who are churched, is that that's a tool Satan tries to always use. Satan tries to, the more we abide by these rules, the more that we cherish them, the more that we know them, the more that we see the benefit of them in our lives, he tries to slowly take us off course from realizing our whole goal is to get more and more into the presence of God and slowly turn it into a place where we start looking in the mirror going, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty great person. And the reason Satan loves that is if he can get you into that game, it does exactly what happened with the Pharisees. The moment we turn this into about us and not about him, then not only does love disappear, but actually we start doing the opposite. Right? If this is a game about how good we can abide by the rules, well, you know how I know I'm winning? If I'm doing better than you. Which means it changes my perspective. Instead of me seeing you and realizing what a beautiful reflection of God you are, instead of me acknowledging how God is using you in the kingdom and how God is using you to do his work, I instead am more incentivized now to see where you're failing. I'm more motivated to see where you're weak because your weakness makes me feel strong. And this is why we see our society being what it is where we're so eager to pull each other down we do that because when we pull others down, it makes us feel just a little bit better about ourselves. You know, what I think is one of the greatest testaments to this in our modern culture is reality television. We don't like reality television because we get to see celebrities in fancy cars or nice houses or go on great vacations. We like it because we get to see they're just as messed up as we are. Maybe more. And then we get to tell ourselves, well, 
if the rich and famous and powerful and beautiful and talented are this messed up. It's not that bad that we have our flaws. We're doing pretty good. It's the wrong mentality to have. And so my hope is just for a bit, we will pause thinking that everything's about us and we will go into this scripture and we will just be amazed at who God is. Because brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, what gets you into heaven, what changes every second of your life is not the rules. It's the love of Christ in your life. It's the desire to see where he is and follow him because you know as long as you're in his presence, things will be better. And so today I want us to look at a story that to me highlights so much of who he is and the beauty that he has and why I love being his disciple. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip with me to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. In Luke chapter 5, we're picking up at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so it's important to remember that at this point in time, he is not famous Jesus. See, about 18 months into Jesus' ministry, the word is out about him. The miracles he has performed, this political battle that he is in with the Pharisees, he has become this, this figure in culture. And so at that point in his ministry, everywhere he goes, thousands flock, whether they love him or hate them, just simply to see the show. Just simply to see what is going on. But at this moment, this is the beginning of his ministry. And so while he has followers, he's yet to do the hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of miracles. He's yet to become this unbelievably politically divisive figure. And it's at this point we see Jesus in the early days of his ministry preaching and building who his disciples will be. And that's where I want us to focus today. So it says in Luke chapter 5, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and he began teaching the people from the boat. And so the first thing I want you to see here is from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, one of the most amazing things about him was how powerful he was as a teacher. He's an awesome teacher. Right? This is before we have any registered public miracles that have made people realize, like, this guy's different. At this point, Jesus' following is growing simply because of the way that he is able to express the word of God and to preach with an authority. That is what's bringing people to him. And I think that's an important part for us to understand because I think sometimes as human beings, we read about God, Jesus and we go, well, he's God. He's God. So, I mean, of course he was able to do things to amass a following. But no, there was discipline and dedication and understanding and studying that Jesus used in his life. I mean, what's amazing about Jesus is literally any time he spoke, it could have been scripture. But he regularly went back to what his father had already said thousands of years ago, unpacked that truth, and showed people how it related to their lives today. 
And at this point where we see Jesus is, is so many people are starting to show up for him preaching that he's on this beach preaching. He realizes there's too many folks. If they're going to hear me. I need some distance. So he has to get in the boats to actually get out into the water a bit so that he can project loud enough for the number of people to hear him. Now, brothers and sisters, I think one of the interesting things you and I miss is like, I don't think we've ever experienced the kind of charisma that Jesus had. Like, you ever know those people, like, you see those celebrities where you just, you're just drawn to them? Like, you can always tell those really charismatic actors where they can play the role of a bad guy, but you still like them? You ever seen people who are capable of doing that? And it's like, there is no reason I should like this character. Everything they're doing is despicable. But the way that person's doing it, there's a charisma, there's an energy, there's, there's a personality, there's something here that's, like, drawing me to them. I think Jesus had more of that than we could ever imagine. This ability to inspire people, to draw people, to, to, to engross people in what he was saying. And his came not only from that charisma, but from his authority. I love this. In Luke chapter 4, verse 31 through 32, it talks about him teaching. And it says, And when he was teaching them on the Sabbath, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. See, one of the things that stood out about Jesus is, to be honest, the things he was preaching had been preached forever. When you go to Jesus and, and talk about what he built his ministry upon, it is the concepts of love God and love people, which are as Old Testament as you can get. Those are the core of Judaism. You find them in the book of Deuteronomy. They're the core of the Ten Commandments. They're the core of the prophets. Love God, love people is everywhere, and people had been preaching it for thousands of years. But when Jesus came, something was different. He didn't preach it as one who was thinking this was a good idea. He didn't preach this as one who thought this might be helpful to you. He didn't preach this as someone who was giving you a consultation or advice. No, when he preached, he preached with an authority that the people could tell was coming from God. It was a bold, profound, strong, and courageous voice. Brothers and sisters, I think that's important to remember. I told you before, I kind of hate that this modern image of Jesus is I'll date myself here, but he always looks like Barry Gibb from the Bee Gees. Anybody remember Barry Gibb? Like perfect flowing hair, great beard, perfectly trimmed, right? So he's this really handsome guy taking care of a sheep or a kid, right? It's like this image that you always see of him. But I don't think he was that. I think he was more William Wallace from Braveheart. I think this is the kind of guy who can walk into a peaceful place and rile it up. This is the kind of guy who can walk to people who are completely in the comfort of the world and go throw it all away and come with me and let's go fight a war. And people gladly leave all of it behind and go with him. This was not a weak, kind, quiet person. This was a bold, authoritative rebel. This was the kind of person that speaks in such a way that after you hear them, all you want to do is act. That's what Jesus brought. He's a great, great teacher. But look on, there's more here. 
It says, so then when they had done this, after he's preached to them, verse 4, it says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I want you to pick up something here because I think we missed this. But I can't help but reading the story realize that Jesus is funny, he's humorous. Now, like, this not me, like, ha-ha funny, like Robin Williams funny. But this is a humorous thing that Jesus does. Jesus is preaching in these guys' boats. And what's their job? They're professional fishermen. And back then, you didn't pick a profession off of whim. Most likely, for generations, Simon's family has been fishermen. Simon has probably been doing this since he was an infant. His whole life has been on the water, catching fish, doing this job. And so at the wrong time and at the wrong place, after a long day of fruitless labor, Jesus looks at the professional fisherman and goes, let's go fish. And you can see that Peter kind of has this incredulous spirit about it because he's like, are you kidding me? Like He doesn't want to be disrespectful, but he's like, Jesus, I do this. Like, this is my space, man. I'm a fisherman, and we fished all day, and we caught nothing. And now at the wrong time, in a bad place, you just want me to go do this? And by the way, back then, this type of fishing is not the kind where you just roll out, cast your line into the shore, and sit there peacefully. No, this is you taking 100-pound nets that you just cleaned, which normally takes hours to do, lugging those, throwing them into the sea, and then pulling them all back up. This isn't peaceful fishing. This is hard, laborious work, but Jesus is asking, let's go. Let's go do this. And I love that they go do it in the wrong place at the wrong time against the wisdom of the professionals, and what happens? He catches more fish than he's ever seen in his entire life. He catches so much fish, his net's starting to break. He catches so much fish that not only his boat, but his buddy boat start to sink. And what I love about this is, brothers and sisters, I think we miss this sometimes. God is a humorous and funny character. And you know how we know that? Just look around our world. You're not unique. You are created in the reflection of God. You are made in his image. You think there's this many jokes and this much humor in our world for us to have a God that's boring and angry and upset all the time? No. Do you think the God who created the platypus does not have a sense of humor? A beaver with a duck face. Come on, that's funny. There's no way that guy doesn't have a sense of humor. I mean, God's, God is a, a beautiful person to be around. I'll be honest, I've met some Christians whose biggest concern about heaven is, is are we not going to get bored? 
And like I thought about this, like even on vacation, which, which I don't take a lot of, but when I do, I try to do nothing. But I'll be real with you, after a couple of days of just chilling, I get antsy. I'm like, I need something. I need a project. I need some work to do. In fact, after a few days, I start to stress out if I don't have stuff to do. And like, I'll, I'll be sitting there. I'm like, I don't know. I just don't feel comfortable. I don't, you know, I'm feeling a little, I, I don't know. If there's like in the back of my head, I should be doing something. And Nicole will be like, just, just, there's nothing to do. Just calm down. And I'm like, I got to find something. There's got to be something. So there's times when I'm thinking about, imagine being in heaven for a hundred million years of peace and paradise and perfection. At some point, am I going to get bored? Well, if you have that thought, here's what you're not realizing. No, because you can't get bored around God. This is the most profound, wise, inspiring, powerful, funny, creative, amazing being that you've ever been around in your entire life. And there's no limit to those things. You will never hear the last joke from him. He'll always have one more. He'll never reveal to you the last mystery. There'll always be one more. The depths of his beauty and his power and his majesty are beyond our comprehension. And I think we miss this. Don't be with God because you feel like you have to. You should be with God because you want to. I would hope that today, if God himself came down and said, guess what? Everybody goes to heaven. Whether you go to church or not, whether you believe in me or not, whether you, any of those things, everybody gets to go. That it would not change a single person's behavior in this room. Because what I hope is, is the reason you're here is not trying to earn heaven. I hope the reason you're here is because you go, I love God. I am not forced to be around my children. Well, some days I am, but, but I want to be. And if you ever offered to take them away from me, I would go, you need to leave or you're going to get hurt. I want to be with those people. That's, that, I don't want to be anywhere else but there. And that's exactly how you and I should feel about being with God. And I know some of you right now, you're like, I'm only here because of guilt trip. The alarm rang, and I did not want to come. <laughs> the alarm rang, and I wanted to be anywhere else. I wish I was sleeping right now. In fact, I'm already daydreaming about what food I'm going to eat. And I'm just lucky that it's not football season, because if football was on, I sure as heck wouldn't be here right now. And I know some of you are only here because of the guilt of your spouse or your parents or a family member, or even for some of you, your own internal guilt, which makes you feel like you have to be here or God's going to get angry at you. For all of you there who are here for those reasons, you should rethink things. This should be the kind of place where you're like, you couldn't keep me away. Why would I not want to be here? That's the kind of passion that we should have for him. The third thing I see in this is, man, he knows you. This is the weirdest gospel presentation ever. But this is how Peter becomes a believer. 
Simon does not become a believer through Jesus going, hey, Peter, we need to talk about the fact that everybody is a sinner. Everybody has done wrong, and when you're a sinner, you deserve death, but God has come to sacrifice for you, and if you have faith in God and believe in God, he will wash away your sins, and if you will choose to follow him, well, then paradise is for you. That's not how Peter receives the gospel. Peter receives the gospel on a fishing trip. Peter receives the gospel from the fact that Jesus tells him, let's go fish in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the boats start to sink. And what Peter in that moment realizes is, this is not just a teacher standing before me, this is God. Peter goes, I know this space, I know this job, I know these waters, I know what we're doing, and what just happened doesn't just happen. This wasn't an accident. This isn't a coincidence. This is God creating this. And this man just did it. And notice, look at, look at what immediately this gospel presentation creates in Peter. Right? No, no deep theological truths have been revealed. Just simply this miraculous catch of fish. And look what immediately Peter says. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. See, brothers and sisters, the reason I love following Jesus is he knows me better than I know myself. He knows what makes me happy. He knows what inspires me. He knows what makes me laugh. He knows what my purpose is. He knows what I'm good at. He knows what I'm bad at. He knows exactly what I need in any moment of life ever. And so I love following him because the reality is, do you know who I have the most blind spots about often? Myself. Like, have you ever had one of those moments where you see a picture of yourself and you're like, that's not me. Do I really look like that? No. That's impossible. I remember that happening a few times, both with my weight and my balding. I remember there was a picture once I was looking at, and it was like a group picture, and I'm like, who's that fat, bald guy? <gasps> That's me. <laughs> what angle is this at? That can't be me. That's not possible. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's you. That's exactly how others see you. Because the reality is, what I see in the mirror in the morning, that's the lie. Because in the mirror, I'm translating that. I'm seeing that through eyes I want to see. I've learned to stand in the best way. I've learned to look at it the right way. I've learned to do something with my jaw to make it look a little bit more defined. And so in that moment, when I'm evaluating how I look, I have presented myself in the best possible way. But the reality is, the rest of the day, nobody else is looking at me that way. I mean, let's be real, young people, you guys are all intimately aware of this with the Instagram selfies that you're like, who is that? That is not my best friend. I don't recognize that individual. How do they get that photo? We've all learned to do this, but Jesus, what I love about him is he just knows you. And he knew what Peter needed that moment was not some deep theological lesson. Peter needed to see a huge catch of fish. And he knew if Peter saw that, it would change Peter's life. It would completely change him. So that's why I love to follow him, because I love someone who knows me that well. 
someone who knows the littlest of tiniest of things that to others mean nothing. Because to be honest, do you realize everybody else misses it? Right? There's this whole group of people watching, and we don't read about any other of them falling down and declaring Jesus Lord. But in that one moment, well, everybody else was like, hey, that was a pretty cool trick. How did Jesus know the fish would be out there? Everybody else sees coincidence. Everybody else sees a cool event. Peter sees God standing before him. That's what Peter sees. Jesus knew what he needed. Look at John chapter 21. I think this is always so amazing to me. In John chapter 21, something beautiful happens with Peter. In John chapter 21, we see almost a mirror image of this story we saw at the beginning of the book of Luke. And it's amazing because if you really know scripture and you know the timeline, these two moments could not be further from themselves. In Luke chapter 5, Simon, still called Simon, he hasn't got his nickname from Jesus, Peter. Peter's his nickname. It basically means Rocky. Simon doesn't know who Jesus is. Simon is a fisherman. Simon doesn't know the journey that him and Jesus are going to go on. They don't know the ministry they're going to have. They don't know the miracles he's going to see. He doesn't know the pain that he's going to go through. He doesn't realize that moment of Jesus dying on the cross. He also doesn't realize that in Jesus' deepest, darkest moment, when he needs him the most, that Peter will betray him. In Luke chapter 5, we know none of that. We just see Jesus encountering Peter and offering him a chance to be one of his disciples. To follow him. Right? Because after they catch that fish, he looks at him and says, you shouldn't be afraid of me. He said, you come with me. You come with me and I'll make you a fisher of men. I'll make you a fisher of men. But three years pass. And at this point that we catch up with them in John 21, Peter is probably at his lowest because Peter has done the one thing that Peter thought he would never do. Throughout their entire ministry, whenever Jesus would talk about dying, Peter was the guy who fought it. Peter was the guy who said, I will never let that happen. As long as I'm breathing, Lord, I'm never going to let anybody kill you. As long as I'm breathing, I will never betray you. I will never leave your side. I will never bail on you. I will always be here with you. And Peter would scream that, and he would fight Jesus on that topic. But then the night comes. The night comes, and Jesus is arrested. The night comes and Jesus is taken to be put on trial. And all of a sudden, Peter, who had said he'd be this mighty warrior, suddenly finds himself being a coward. And in fact, in that moment, when everybody is turning against Jesus, they go, aren't you with him? And three times, three times that night, Peter denies that he even knew Christ. And so after Jesus dies and after Jesus rises back from the dead and after Jesus performs some miracles, Jesus reconvenes with his men, but Peter can't get past that moment. Peter has become what he said he would never be. Peter didn't just betray himself, but he betrayed his Savior. And there is a guilt and there is a fear in him 
And it's the worst kind of guilt and fear because it's the kind of guilt and fear you have not for someone you're afraid of, but for someone you love. Have you ever done that? Right? Like it's one kind of fear to know that you have an enemy you don't like who wants to hurt you. But it's a much worse thing when you know someone you love more than anyone else you have hurt so badly that you were wrong. You were the bad guy. You betrayed them. That's the fear Peter lives with. And in John chapter 21, we encounter just this this beautiful moment that reflects just again why I love Christ. In verse 15, and let me catch you up because I want want you to see the parallels. On this day, Jesus catches the disciples and they're fishing just like they were that day. And from far away on the coast, Jesus tells them, hey, throw your nets on the other side because they're not catching anything. So the disciples listen. They don't realize it's Jesus. They throw their nets on the other side. And what happens? They haul up this amazing amount of fish. And as soon as they start pulling those nets up and they see the fish they've got, they all realize. They all realize, like, that's Jesus. And it kind of breaks your heart because even though Peter has this, 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 this fear of Jesus right now because he's ashamed of what he's done, Peter's so excited. Peter doesn't wait for the boat to get back to shore. Peter jumps in the water and starts swimming to shore. He's overcome with this initial emotion of just like, i got to get to Jesus. Oh my gosh, he's here. Just drop everything and run. It reminds me of like, you ever see those toddlers when you get home from work? Like there's that terrible teenage age where the kids no longer respond to you when you come home. There's that beautiful age when they're little and you open the door, they hear the key and they start running. You can hear them like, dad, 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 right? That's Peter. He's just so excited to see Jesus. And so you already have this kind of mirror image of of this miraculous catch of fish, but then look what happens in 15. After the initial emotion rises, it goes away, Peter's caught with his guilt. And so it says, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. He, Jesus, said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he, being Peter, said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him again, Tend my sheep. Brothers and sisters, there's a little nuance that we miss there. When Jesus asks Peter, does he love him? He's using this word agape, which means, do you love me more than anything? And Peter, I think because of his shame, responds to Jesus, I love you like a brother. And so the second time Jesus goes, that's nice, but do you love me more than anything? And Peter kind of shamefully again says, I I love you like a brother. But the third time, Jesus goes, do you love me like a brother? And that's where he goes, Lord, you know everything. 
You know everything. And there's a beautiful sentence that Jesus says. He looks at him one more time and he says, tend my sheep. Do you see the mere reflection? Right before Peter had ever betrayed Jesus, before Peter had ever sinned against him, God comes to him through Jesus, and Jesus says, I want you to be my disciple. We're going to go be fishers of men. You're going to come with me, and you're going to help me build my flock. And now after three years, and after this unbelievable betrayal, where Peter is ashamed of what he has done, what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up again on the shores, and even after his greatest failure, he looks at Peter and he goes, I love you. Let's get back to work. Go take care of my sheep. Can you imagine what kind of relief that had to be to Peter? To know that even after this betrayal, even after this guilt that was weighing him down, that Jesus would come to him and go, Brother, I forgive you. Who you are and what you mean to me and what our mission is has not changed. Go take care of my sheep. See, brothers and sisters, that's why I love Jesus. He's powerful. He's bold. He's courageous. He's inspiring. He's loving and he's so forgiving. How many of us would have told Peter, get lost? Yeah, you ride by my side when everything's good. You're there for me when I'm performing miracles. You're there for me when I'm the superstar. But the moment that I needed you, you acted like you didn't even know me. How easy for Jesus to tell him to get lost. You see, that's the beauty of Christ. Christ doesn't love you and judge you based on your worst moment. He loves you for the spirit that he made you to be. He loves you as his child that he shaped in your mother's womb. He loves you not for what you have or haven't done, but for who you are and for the love that you have together. And that's why I love him. And so brothers and sisters, my hope for you is not just today that you'll reflect on these things we've talked about, but that you will challenge yourself this week as you pray and as you read, to do it just a little bit differently. Don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with going to God's Word and looking for advice on how to have a better marriage or how to raise your children or how to spend your finances or how to be healthy. There's tons of wisdom in it. Tons. But maybe, maybe just first start with reading it to remember how awesome your God is. And that it is an unbelievable miracle that that God wants to have anything to do with me. And that each and every day, I, me, who carry no importance in this world, can at a moment's notice go, Father God and the creator of the universe, in the midst of doing all that he does, go, yes, son, I'm here. That's unreal that I get to call him dad and that I get to know he's there every moment.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for you. The greatest gift you've given us is for us to be in your presence. To know your beauty, your power, your love, your humor, your wisdom, your kindness, your compassion, your forgiveness. Oh Lord, the adjectives, we could just go on and on. You are everything, Lord. Father, it is my prayer that each and every one of us in this room will know that the greatest gift, the greatest hope, is not on the places that we could be, but with the fact that we are with you. I pray, Father, that we are a people, that whether you lead us to the green pastures or you take us to the valley of the shadow of death, we don't care. All we want to do, Lord, is be in your presence and be by your side. I pray, Lord, that we're a people that so often have their eyes set upon you that we don't let the darkness of this world ever distract us or pull us away. Father, thank you for being our Father. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to be our Lord. And thank you for every single day of our lives being right there with us. We love you, we praise you, and we are honored to serve you. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As Maria comes up, uh, she's going to lead us in a song. I'm going to ask Brother Joe to come forward with me. Actually, he disappeared. Where'd he go? There he is. And uh, we'll be up here to pray with you. Brother James, Brother Frausto, uh, Brother Matt will be in the back. If there's anything on your heart that you just